three, two, one. Live from the iconic Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York, I'm your host, Noor Tajuri, and welcome to this episode of Podcast Noor. Our next storyteller hails from Lagos, Nigeria. Shayan Kuti is an artist and the youngest son of Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti. Shayan has spent most of his life preserving and extending his father's political and musical legacy as the leader of his father's band, Egypt 80. Since Fela's passing, Shayan has revived the movement of the people, commonly known as MOP. MOP is a Nigerian left-wing pan-African political movement started by Fela. And thanks to Shayan's grassroots efforts, it's been making a comeback. This interview has been in the works for about a year. And Shayon's visit to New York is just less than 48 hours. So we are sitting down at the Apollo Theater shortly before him and his band perform their show, Africa Now. In this episode, we talk about how Fela's legacy has been misinterpreted and how it's been celebrated. The role of matriarchy in the Kuti family and how this was the foundation of their anti-colonial work. We dig into the Pan-African Revolution, the trap of being a rebel without a cause, addressing North African racism, and so much more. Oh, and remember the artist Mumu Fresh from our rep investigation? She has some questions for Shayan, artist to artist, so we pass those along too. Welcome back to Podcast Noor. It's interesting because I've actually been thinking a lot about the words good and bad and how they're very limiting words. They're not words. I try not to use them in general because I feel like what does good mean? What does bad mean? We use yes. them towards people a lot. Subjective. And, exactly. They're subjective words. And also at the same time, it's like the word sanction. Yeah. It's like the word sanction to me. It just means everything. If I sanction your action, it means I support your action. If I sanction your action, it means I don't support your action. You're at right. At the same time. <laughs> you know, That's so... So good and bad is just like that. Like, yeah. You know, I it's such an extreme, like he's a good person. Yeah. So then... But good to who? And what no, does that mean? No, at the same mean? time, no, if you accept that you're a good person, so what can you do? What can't you do? You know, he's a bad person. What can he do? What can he do? Yeah. Like, mm. <laughs> All right. Shayan Koti, welcome. Thank you so much. You are here, we're recording this from the Apollo Theater where you're going to be performing later tonight with your band Egypt 80 and um, 24 hours here in New York to yeah. and from Lagos. Well, we're so excited to be talking to you. I feel like this conversation has been, it has literally been months in the making. We were hoping that it would happen last year and then we heard you were coming back and we were like, we have to make sure that we do this. So thank you for sitting down with me. I feel special, I feel chaste. Oh, sought after. <laughs> yeah, well, we we also feel the same now that we're here and we're having this conversation. So the way we kick off um, these these interviews is a simple question: How is your heart doing today? Oh, wow, you're the second person to ask me this question. No, today. No, since I've been in New York. Wow. Yeah, my I... friend Michaela said the same thing to me yesterday. How is your and how is your heart this morning? Well, joyous. I you know, love so that. Good. Well, I'm still, I'm in a joyous spirit. My heart is in a good place. I'm yeah. Joyous, pumping. Yes. Yes. The rhythm. Mm -hmm. my, my heart is rhythmic. Mm -hmm. Good rhythm, you know. Uh, I mean, a little bit before we started recording, you were talking about how you got to talk to your daughter this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I spoke to her a little bit. 
but she hasn't replied me. Oh, yeah, you know the do you take offense to that? No, 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 no. No, you know she has her, she's doing we her spoke own thing. yesterday, but it's also kind of like, it's 5 p.m., so probably she's up to something. Yeah. I would love to know, like, with tonight's show and just where you're at right now in your life, what is your intention? What is the story that you want to present to your audience tonight? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's good. Uh, today's show is actually really special to me because... You know, some years ago, I think my dad played here in 91 or something. Mm. And at the show, well, when I told him, I want to play too. How so old were you? I was like seven or something. Some 32 odd years ago, eight. Yeah. And I've been playing in the band. When we go back home, I started playing in the band. Yeah. So it's good to be back to the place where the decision was made. Yeah. You know? Uh, so today's show is kind of a... You know, for me, it's a journey. So yeah. I wanted to reflect that kind of journey. So I'm starting off with some real, like, so I think today's show is going to be like a real, like, and then we just get to like a crescendo and end it there. Mm. You know, finish on top. Mm. I really want it to be also like a a journey through, since we're in a place that has, has held so much of what I'll call African time. Yeah. You know? Black history, as they say, but mm -hmm. that's African time to me. I don't see it as black history here. You know, it would also be good to take people on that kind of musical mm. journey through the history of Afrobeat music, you know, play things from really, really the beginning of where it all started from and all the way to what I'm doing right now. Yeah. You know, even things I haven't recorded yet, I'm going to play tonight Ooh. as part of this experience into... You know, um, this whole journey and where we are today, now, yeah. Africa, now. Africa, you know, now. On, That's the name of tonight's show. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I was visiting the new museum and currently all six floors have been taken over um, by this phenomenal Kenyan artist, Wengechi Mutu. And the one of the first pieces that I saw on the wall that really took me aback was a collage painting piece of art that she has titled Yo Mama. And it's actually um, inspired by your beloved grandmother. And I began going down the rabbit hole of just how generationally there's been this deep message of anti-colonialism, of African liberation in your family. And you know, I've been thinking about how you've been continuing your father's legacy for all of these, all of these years, literally since you were a child. That's a lot of pressure. You know, um, funny enough, I think it's because, you know, of the patriarchal nature of the world mm. that people don't also say like, oh, my father continued his mother's legacy. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because suddenly Fela's story is like, Fela just came out of nowhere as this revolutionary Pan-Africanist. Not that he's standing on his mother's shoulders. No, yeah, of course. Which is what it is. Fela is Fela because, because of, of his mother. Yeah. Because he's Fumilayo's son. If he wasn't Fumilayo's son, there's no way in hell yeah. he would be the Fela that we know today. Yeah. You know, and if Fumilayo herself wasn't her father's daughter, you know, because her lineage has always been uh, very revolutionary. Yeah. You know, because with wealth comes a certain kind of freedom. Mm. And her family being wealthy, mm -hmm. they were able to explore those mm -hmm. educational opportunities mm -hmm. that many Africans, maybe 90% of Africans were locked out of in those days. 
Yeah. You know, this is the 19th century I'm talking about here. Right. You know, up until the 20th century, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, early 20th century, late 19th century, mm -hmm. where Africans were not allowed to do anything. Yeah. We couldn't even walk on the sidewalk. Mm. If a white man was coming, you had to step up. In, this is not, I'm not talking about Jim Crow South or yeah. I'm talking about in Africa. Yeah. Under colonialism. Yeah. You know, we couldn't own homes in our own countries. We couldn't live in the same neighborhoods. We were sequestered and all of that. They were able to already be free of that. Yeah. So our mother is my grandmother knew the world and understood the world and knew black people had to, or African people had to change that world and raised all her children, you know, to be that way, you know. Yeah. People know my dad because he's a famous artist, but also my uncle, Dr. Beko Ransom Kuti, was even a greater revolutionary, if I have to say, in terms of revolutionary work than my dad, mm. you know, uh, went to jail more than my dad <laughs> and things like that, you know, but mm. he was a medical doctor, mm. you know. Uh, so in my family has always been that fire because we understand mm. um, the true, uh, reality of uh, of being African in this world, mm. in a world where the institutions are created specifically specifically to exclude you, yeah, you know, and how you navigate that. So, I think that is what it is. So, I would love to um, I would love to start there with your with your grandmother Fani Malau and how how as a child you received her story. So. She was an example from when you were young and when she was talked about or when she was, um, when she led your family, how did you see, you know, patriarchy not show up or the example that you were looking for? How did that frame your own worldview? Well, you know, funny enough, uh, this... <sighs> This patriarchal conversation, you know, is kind of new in uh, my family's lingua because my family has been quite matriarchal. You know, even right now, uh, the head of my of our family, the Anikulapos, not the whole family, but our and Fela's children is my my eldest sister. She controls the family, holds everything together. Mm. You know, uh, my family has always had a long history of deferring to the women in the family to run everything. Mm -hmm. So, uh, even my dad has been called uh, misogynistic and patriarchal in many of the criticisms that he's been uh, given in the world of intelligentsia, mm. as you say. You know, forgetting that we are not Europeans, you know, uh, that my dad married uh, a lot of women was his culture. Mm. Not really him. It wasn't a power dynamic. It was a cultural thing. Yeah. And also to the extent that in our culture as African people, women have always been elevated to positions of leadership and also worship. You know, because in African traditional religions, we have the gods and we have the goddesses, mm. you know. So the feminine form has already achieved the divine. Mm. You know, this is not Christianity or Islam mm -hmm. where all the prophets are male, the son of God. God doesn't have a daughter. God himself is male, no wife, you know. Uh, we don't, everything, uh, all the forms in Africa already had achieved the divine. Mm. 
Mm. You know, and we don't have a creation myth story that blames the woman yeah. for the destruction of our connection with our God and all that. So there's really no, how would I put it? In pre-colonial African society, there's that balance mm. of power in relationships. So my family being quite traditional mm. to a certain extent, we never had that dynamic of power within the family where people were negated or overlooked because of their sex. Mm. I'm telling you, really, there are some Kuti slash Anikola Bukuti family. Uh, we've always been quite balanced and in our yeah. relationship and approach. So uh, even without knowing my grandma, I, I would say I never really felt like, oh, I was more special than my sister. You're right. You know, yeah. in any way or shape or form or anything like that. My family, even my dad, my mom, although when my grandmom was spoken of, you have to understand, people spoke of my grandmom like they spoke of a god. You mm -hmm. know, like I didn't meet her. She died in 77, 78. Mm. I was born in 83. Yeah. So I only ever heard stories. Yes. So I never met her. I only ever heard stories. And you know, she's not spoken of. It's like, oh, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, you know, for Christians. Like, so they don't speak to her like, oh, you can just formula your no, 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 no. When she was spoken about, it was in complete reverence, you know, like, wow. You know, yeah. so for me, I didn't need that though, to mm -hmm. understand uh, the balance that humanity must have between the sexes and the respect and the deference to the feminine form because it existed all around me. I appreciate you sharing that openly because something that I'm curious to talk to you about is you have like very strong feelings and stances towards religion, specifically Islam and Christianity, especially in how they've shown up in African nations. And, um, and I would love to just dig a little bit deeper into your, where that stems from in yourself. Like what is your personal relationship with religion and spirituality and how it has been weaponized in your life? Well, you know, my family, lucky for me, I've never, my, my dad was not so lucky. You know, my dad grew up in a Christian, yeah, very Christian family, mm. you know, and I think that is the biggest evidence, you know, you know, from the child of a, my grandfather was a reverend and none of his children went to church, you know, because they could see that it was it was a farce. You know, the closer you get to the reverend, the the more the more anti-religion you are. I Can guess. Can you unpack that though? Like, what, what do you think that they saw? Because it was I their mean, own father. I mean, my uncle father. told me. Oh, like my uncle just told me like his dad was such a hypocrite. You know, like yeah, yeah. So my, my dad died when I was fourteen, so I didn't really. My dad, if you read his book, if mm. you if there's anything you take out of my father's book, this bitch of a life was that his father was an asshole. If there's anything you, <laughs> you take out of this book, you know, so none of his kids liked him. So I think that's why they didn't really want to be like him. You know, mm. I think he wasn't the guy that was liked. You okay. Know? So, and he was, he beat the shit out of him mm. all the time, mm. you know, because you have to understand also how colonialism distorted the meaning of um, love between African parents and their children. Yeah, tell me more. Many of my friends have so much animosity towards their parents and not because their parents abuse them in this real sense of the word, but that they love them in the wrong way, which is still abuse. You know, because when you are colonized and, you know, the word of your oppressor 
becomes is taught to you as an inalienable truth, you know, an incontestable fact. Yeah. You know, things like spare the rod and you spoil the child, which is nothing but the colonialist trying to use his so-called word of God mm. to justify his brutality towards you. Mm. So that is sold to you, you know, because Africans were so brutalized, you know, in the name of anything, you know. So, but the Europeans, to maintain colonialism and the civilizing, uh, and this civilized, civilizing mission that they were on, mm. couldn't say they were doing all this because they hated African people. That is, they were trying to civilize them. So, this was just a way to show love, because it's in the Bible that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. And you have to understand that Africans were children that were being molded into civilized adults. So, a lot of whipping was happening. Yeah. So a lot of Africans internalize this mm. as a way of showing, even in their personal relationship with their wives. In fact, some African women will say if their husband don't beat them, then they don't think he loves them. You understand? I'm following, yeah. So a lot of African parents in teaching their children, in doing whatever, always mm. beat them. Always. In schools who are beaten, you know, I was beaten in school many times, but I told my dad that my dad wrote a letter. And I didn't know I could tell my dad and something could be done. But when I told him, Whoa. he wrote a letter to the school, that you anybody touch my kid, I'm kicking your ass. You know, so I was exempted from this whipping again. Oh, my dad, thank you. Wow. You know, but all my friends were getting their ass kicked, you know. You know, and they whip you in the name of teaching you, in the name of, you know, trying to mold you, correct you, you know. So and what you have to you... understand that a lot of people went through this from our, sorry, let me just... Yeah from this experience that we've had, and even up till today, it's still prevalent in a lot of relationships, mm. you know. I'm noticing the power of a father-son relationship when it is more healthy, when you had, like, when you're still, all these years later, thanking your dad for doing oh, something. Oh, my dad, my dad saved me from so many of Nigeria's toxic uh, social um, norms, you know, and they used to think he was, you know, they used to call him crazy, you know, and I grew up now, I'm like, man, <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's difficult to be a normal person among the crazy group, you know. Hi there, Noor here from At Your Service. At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second. Meaning we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. Well, when did you, when in your life did you realize how, 
radical and different it was that he was protecting you in this way or that he was leading in a different way than the norm? No, I always knew he was leading for me different. I mean, it was obvious that my dad was different. Yeah. <laughs> Very obvious, you know, that fella was different from, um, and not just fella, but um, the consciousness that ran our family, our community, those people that we knew as well. Because you also have to understand that when I was growing up, I was kind of, Kalakota was also kind of like isolated from the larger Nigerian society in terms that we are so, Fela was so stigmatized mm. by mm -hmm. mainstream society. It wasn't as if he was embraced like a national hero when he was alive, you know. Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, yeah, but that's life, eh? You know, uh, growing up as Fela's son, you know, that's why even today I'm skeptical of the love that everybody suddenly says they have for my dad. I'm like, hmm, mm. hmm. You know, <laughs> who are you the most skeptical of when they say that, though? Because you're continuing Fela's movement of the for the people, yeah. and it's still it's still met with resistance. Yeah, but mostly the mainstream, especially. I'm skeptical yeah. of the mainstream in terms of from uh, media to uh, government. You know, yeah. like everything mainstream that's trying to embrace. Fella, you know, media corporations, government, politicians, you know, even religious uh, institutions trying to embrace him. You know, I'm like, you know, we need to really take all this with a pinch of salt yeah. you know, and see how they're trying to change the narrative to suit what they, are, what they want their agenda to be, you know, or the new agenda to be, you know, and trying to take Fella's narrative to buttress that and maybe removing the true essence of what the man was about mm -hmm. and just giving people what I call a fella light, you know, version, you know. So, and what is that? What, define that for us. Oh, that's... Who is fella in that way? Who, is, who fella is in that way is this fun-loving guy that smoked a lot of weed and fucked a lot of girls, you know, and was a rebel, mm. you know. So, but, so his rebellion was basically smoking weed and fucking a lot of girls. So young people were like, oh, I just smoke a lot of weed. Sleep with a bunch of, bunch of ladies, you know, and be, give a big middle finger to everybody, mm. you know. And in this way, this is what a rebel is today. In the mind of so many young people, they don't understand that, no, uh, there's a, a system that you must key that rebellion against, mm. understanding what that system is. Mm. And your actions are not just, you're not just rebelling in a void, you know, mm -hmm. which is what is happening, you know. Everybody hates you know, like, I'll give you a good example. Like, everybody yeah. hates the government. Why? Because the government is run by billionaires. But everybody loves bitcoins that are also run by billionaires. And they believe that bitcoin is going to set them free. Yeah. You know, I'm like, how can you trust the bitcoin mm. if you don't trust the government? Mm. No more money. Because it's the same billionaires that, you know, run both of them. Right. You know, Elon Musk sneezes and bitcoin catches cold. You know, he sneezes, Biden gets a cough. You know, it's the same shit, you know. Mm. So young people are not taught to be analytic in this way. The narrative and the mainstream always wants to sell a simplified form of the narrative that helps you rebel rebel without changing anything. Yeah. And I think Fela is also being put into this. They're trying to put him into this, you know, where people can imitate him without changing anything. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. so that's fella light. That's what I call the fella light version. You know, where you think yeah. just because you go around smoking weed, take your shirt off, you know, you have some girls around you, yeah. you know, and 
you know, you give a big fuck you to anybody you like. Yeah. You're changing anything. Nah, you're just being disrespectful. You know, we have to understand that there's a context. And that's what must not be missing. Fela was not a rebel. He was a pan-Africanist revolutionary who rebelled against the system. Uh, what they're trying to remove from anybody's narrative is that revolutionary aspect. They mm. want you to rebel, but they don't want you to be revolutionary. Mm. You know? Because revolution is nothing but ideology in action. So they don't want you idealized. Right. They don't want you knowing. You know, they just want you to have the feeling, act with your emotion. Right? You know you don't like what is going on. There's injustice. You can feel it. You can feel things yeah. are not right. You can feel the negativity. You can feel the toxicity. Mm. You know, so they want you to just act off that feeling. Yeah. They don't want you to understand what that feeling is. Yeah. You know, study what that feeling is. Yeah. And truly begin to act to negate that feeling, mm -hmm. not just to uh, experience it, but to truly negate it, you know, and remove it from society. Mm. You know, which is what uh, Fela is and which is that aspect of Fela that people must not forget as well, that mm -hmm. this was not in a void. Right. This was against something towards something. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I uh, interviewed Ilyasa Shabazz last year, the daughter of Malcolm X, for a series that I was working on. And when oh, we were cool. talking to her about, she also, in a way, carries on her father's, not in yeah, many ways, on carries on her father's legacy by writing books, by teaching, by constantly speaking. But when I was talking to her about what it was like when she was younger, she had mentioned this immense pressure that she had felt to be Malcolm X's daughter. And everybody had this image in their head of who he was. And she felt, I mean, she is a different person. She has her own identity, her own personality. And so she was mentioning how she had, um, you know, kids on campus at school chasing her down, asking her, wanting her to lead the Black Student Association, putting all this pressure on her to be him, essentially. And she had to, in her career and until now, figure out who she actually is, what, what she's choosing to do that because she wants to do for continuing her father's legacy versus what people put on her to do. And I think that in many ways, you know, you, ha you are literally currently leading the band that your father had originally started. You're, you're continuing the political movement, the movement for the people that your father started. It, was there a sense of pressure to do that or was it from the beginning just something that you knew inside of you was this is what I want to do for me? Well, when my dad died, I was already 14. I was still young. That's still young. Yeah, yeah. but I was 14. You know, I was like maturing. I was a teenager. I knew him. We yeah. did stuff. We'd gone on tours. I was really close to him. I was already in the band. Yeah. I was performing with my dad. And at that age, he could teach me certain things. Mm. You know, like really not... I wouldn't say I understood my dad till he died, you know, like even when he was alive, honestly, you know, mm. I'm going to school, my mm. teachers, the educational institution mm. are not validating my dad. You know, the uh, media mm. at home, the news, whatever, they don't validate my dad. The religious institutions don't validate the things he said. And those are the main things that shape your mind. Well, how did that make you feel as a kid? So it just made me feel like, man, this man is just doing his own thing. There's a different world out there that I have to key into and learn, you know. So yeah. my dad was this thing, but I went to school, I got straight A's, and I was aspiring to be an economist or whatever at that time. Yeah. Because my dad also made sure that he didn't make me feel I had to do anything. The fact that I was performing on stage wasn't my dad saying, oh, you have to be a musician. Mm. 
I went to him. I said, yo, I want to I want to perform. You know, but this is because I was a young, dumb kid as well. You know, I saw my dad every night having fun, you know, money, women. I'm like, this is the best job. I mean, what are you saying? This is, listen, I want to do this job. How? What do I do <laughs> to do this job? He's like, okay, when we get to Lagos, start practicing with the band. And that's how I started playing. You know, so every show, I would open the show for him, you know. I'd go on stage, sing a song or two songs, and my dad didn't come on stage, you know. So that's how I got my own musical thing started. You know, but after like, I started at eight. Mm. I was like 11, 12. I wasn't seeing all this money. All these women weren't there yet. I'm like, what the fuck is this job? I was already looking to quit. <laughs> By the time you were 11, you were like, listen, it's time to retire. Listen, like, what's going on here? You know, this man is the only one getting the money and the girls. What's going on? You know? So, for me, my, my relationship with my dad, and I also had an elder brother. Right. You know, who was doing music. Who was, so, I never had the pressure that, oh, I had to replace my dad or I had to be mm. my dad. So, maybe because I'm, I'm not the eldest son. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe the pressure on my brother was different. I don't know his own relationship and how his psyche was with that. I'm just saying, like, so for me, I really never had that pressure. Right. And after my dad died, I just kept on playing with the band as a tribute to my dad, as a way to honor my dad. Really. Do you remember how you felt then? Yeah, very bad. No, my dad was the closest person to me alive, period. You know, like, and before my dad died, nobody I knew had died. In the first 14 Whoa. years of my ex- right. existence, I didn't know anybody that had died. Everybody I knew was alive. The first person I knew that died was my dad. You know, and he was the closest person I knew. And since my dad died, I've lost my mom. I've lost a sister, cousins, friends. Never cried. I only cried when I lost my... I signed an artist when he was really young. It was so, so, so tragic how he died, you know. So when, the day we were burying him at the thing... I cried. I was so surprised. I'm like, finally. Whew. All these deaths. You, and I finally cry now. Uh, thank you, ancestors. That, well, what did what do you think was turned off inside of you? No, nothing. Nothing just matched that. Nothing matched the pain of yeah. losing your father. Nothing. Do like, you remember like the questions that you were asking in your head when you lost him? No, no, no. But I remember the question I asked my uncle because I Tell didn't me. I didn't see my dad for a few months. He just sequestered him in a hospital till he passed, you know. And I told him as soon as he said that. You guys didn't let me see him, you know? Mm. And that just, like, even made it even worse because I didn't see him for, like, two, three months till he died, you know? Mm. So that made it so bad, and I was so angry at everybody for that, like, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So after my dad died, like, nothing happened that matched that. Mm. My mom died. I was on tour when when they gave me the news. It hurt, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry. Nah. Okay, and my mom and I, we weren't so close as well. We had a good relationship. We weren't so close because I was more, I was closer to my dad than I was to my mom. Mm. I didn't really have a relationship with her per se, like, mm. in terms of, she wasn't my friend, she was my mom, you know? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. It's I mean, so interesting because I find that it's, I think it's, like, more rare to see and hear people talk about their dad the way that you're talking about him, like, as in having, like, this very healthy, loving, close relationship. I, I feel like at least right now when I talk to men about their relationship with their fathers, there there's a lot of straining. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of like, um, 
wanting their validation, but never being good enough. And it just feels like I, I can feel the energy coming off of you of like this lightness, this, this urgency, this like notion of like, it's so important to be doing this. And it's, it, it feels like the, the fuel is still from like the, the experience that you did have with your father. Yeah. And I think maybe because, you know, I didn't grow, I was, you know, I didn't become a man while he was still alive. So maybe there was no, we didn't have time to clash. Ah, right. Probably. So he, so in, in your, in your memory of him, he's like protected in that way. Yeah. You know, so we only had, we had a great relationship as far as father and son could go, you yeah. know, and I was just, I was two years into my teenage years. Yeah. And my dad also wasn't the kind of person that raised us to believe that his love for us was conditional upon us achieving anything. Yeah. You know, I think that was also important. Like, yes, he wanted us to be serious with the things we were doing, you know, but I think because of the relationship he had with his with his parents. Mm -hmm. And probably because of the relationship he had with his, because also the way my father had his kids, my eldest yeah, brother, Femi, 20 he's 20 years older than me. My right. next brother is 12 years older than me. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a huge like space between the kids, and I think by the time he had me, he was older. He had seen the things he had done wrong with his earlier kids, or so like I'm gonna have a good relationship with this one. So I think I benefited from not just the timing I was born in his life, but yeah. from his own personal experiences with his parents, with his mm -hmm. own first kids, and probably him trying extra hard to mm -hmm. get it right. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, so, mm. yeah, so we just had that really cool relationship where his love for me, the validation was there always, regardless of what, ha what I did or, you know, it didn't matter. Right. What I did was what I did. Our relationship is our relationship, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the movement of the people and Pan-Africanism and how you're choosing to use music as a tool to relay the message of the movement. Oh, well, uh, tonight I'm going to, okay, I'm even playing MOP, one of my father's songs, you know, part of this story I'm telling tonight. Yeah. So I'm going to play MOP, you know, uh, because music has always been the fuel to... Uh, the way that we have, from my side, I mean, from my father's time, to push the um, African liberation struggle forward. Yeah. Music is the great fuel that we have in our, you know, and that's our talent. But now this is the catch-22. All the children of Africa must submit their talents to the liberation of Africa. Not just the musical children of Africa, but the medical children of Africa, the doctors, the engineering children of Africa, right. the media, the journalists of Africa, the uh, nurses of Africa, the bureaucrats of Africa, even the rich people of Africa must also, you know, now switch their allegiance to mm. their own continent. You know, for once, I think a lot of people cop out and when they expect musicians to save the world, mm -hmm. you know, oh this artist is not inspiring this, or this person is not making conscious music. It doesn't matter about that. We have enough conscious musicians in the world already. Right. What we don't have enough of are conscious doctors, mm. conscious lawyers, you know, conscious judges, you know, conscious policemen, mm -hmm. you know, because I feel that all social sciences and these institutions that interact to 
actually run human society mm-hmm. must be aligned to humanity you know so definitely music has to be what we have is the talent that i have so i must use it to push mop forward the story of mop every song i write i feel is a dedication to the pro to the true positive progress mm-hmm. not this uh, abstract progress that we preach in society that puts everybody under pressure that even if you sit down in your house and you're not doing something, you feel you're being lazy, you're not being productive, you're not progressing in your life. Not this abstract pro, pro, you know, mm-hmm. progress that sucks the happiness out of the life of everybody. Yeah. You know, where you wake up in the morning and your future immediately begins to oppress you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're, you just wake up and you're like, oh my God, what is tomorrow going to be like? Am I working hard? Am I going to be, oh my God, I'm going to be homeless in 10 years if I don't do this? <laughs> you know, it's crazy. But the true positive progress of humanity, you know, is what we must dedicate ourselves to yeah. in, in, in a certain way. And that for me, you know, I mean, there's no separating that from, from the music. Let me put it that way. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. Hey, I'm Noor Tagori, and I've been telling stories my entire life. For my new podcast, Rep, I've spent years examining a more personal story about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in media has impacted American society. I thought I knew the story because I thought I knew my story. But the more I looked for singular, clear answers, the more questions I had. Our story guides include academics, artists, actors, and we bounce around through American history and culture, witness our present and future unfold, and then we find out how these stories affect all of us. Welcome to Rep. Expression is a space in the heart that is unleashed and let free. It runs wild. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Okay, I have a question that I'm a little bit curious about, but maybe even a little nervous to ask, but that's fine because I think it's important too. When thinking about Pan-Africanism, I shared with you that my family is from Libya. I often think about how like when people talk about Africa, Northern African countries are kind of like separated from that conversation. There's this like distinction, like it's North Africa and yeah, then the well, rest of we Africa. Did, we didn't do that separation, you know, the North Africans make sure that that distinction is made every time. Is the future of Pan-Africanism, does it include the entire continent in your vision? This is a conversation, let me tell you really that, yeah. North Africans should have among themselves. It's not really about us. We, we, I'm telling you the whole Africa jubilated. We are willing, to reconnect, but right. the, the charge, I mean, I mean, it's not the first time, it's what killed Nasser. Nasser was killed for his Pan-Africanist views by extremist Egyptians who felt it was not Arabic and Islamic enough. Yeah. <laughs> so the distinction between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa has never been mm. from Sub-Saharan Africa saying, oh, we don't no, want- No, and my asking of this isn't to blame, and it's not about it's not about who, where did this start, who did it begin with? Because when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about, okay, well, what about the future? Like, what does this mean for future generations? Is there a way that this includes everybody? And the reason I, I ask this specifically, and I'm, I appreciate you bringing up the note about Gaddafi in Libya is because I've always, you know, I've, I've engaged in conversations about this, and I know that, you know, there are a lot of, um, 
people who are fans of Gaddafi because of that notion. But but at no, what no, ex? Just saying it's what killed him. I'm not a fan of Gaddafi. Okay. Okay, thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. But I'm saying I know people who, who are, who when I say, you know, I'm from Libya, who share the sentiment that they are fans of him. And it's be, and it's because of this, the notion of obviously, you know, how he vocalized wanting to unite Africa. And I also think about the, you know, which is obviously something very positive and the expense in which the people of Libya paid. So my family, you know, specifically has had their land taken, their homes taken, people have been killed. My dad witnessed his, you know, his fellow students and friends being hung in the middle of the the school square. And so these are things that people have gone through. And I'm not trying to sit here and like, let's pick apart these specific experiences. What I'm saying is, how do we actually move forward in the conversation around pan-Africanism and unity when like even though it the oppression looks a little bit different than typical colonialism, there still is oppression present. How do future generations make sure not to repeat these same mistakes? You see, for example, we live in the United States here where black people are shot every day on the street like dogs. <laughs> what does it change? How many African-Americans have upped and left America to be like, oh, my friends were killed on the streets, six of my friends for doing nothing. I mean, so I'm leaving this country because we are not safe. Because the narrative, right, of the world doesn't suit that. You, nobody will accept you from America as a political refugee, regardless of how much endangered you are in America. Right. You know, but, you know, the, you can come from Nigeria, from Libya, based on the internal politics of your country. You know, the issue, as I've said before, is that we going on is we must have the internal politics of our countries mean a lot. The sovereignty of those discussions means a lot. Libyans, Moroccans, like I was supposed to go to Morocco last year and I canceled my show. Why? Because on the day I was supposed to play, the same week I was supposed to play in Morocco, over 100 Africans were killed at the border of Morocco and Spain. The ones that survived were treated like animals and nobody issued an apology. In fact, the Africans were blamed for being shot to death like dogs. The same week I was supposed to perform and I said that the only way I can perform at that festival was if that festival was dedicated to the lives of those people lost that day. If the Jazablanca couldn't dedicate their festival to the lives of the African people, I mean, if Morocco is truly in Africa and a hundred Africans have died needlessly, why is it so difficult to acknowledge yeah. that this has happened? Absolutely. They refused. What did, what did I receive? No, a few Moroccans were like, yeah, it's good that you didn't come. We support you. But the majority of Moroccans showed me the biggest racism I've seen in my life. My page was full of monkey, whatever. We don't want you in our country. I went to Morocco also before, that the driver of the bus that picked me up refused to put on the AC because we were black in his bus. So as an African, I've been to Algeria and experienced racism. I've been to uh, Morocco, I've experienced racism. My, my mm -hmm. love, people in my country that were trapped in Libya, trying to escape, were held there and turned into slaves, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? so. Forgive me if I'm telling you for a fact that whatever the situation is between Africans 
and North Africans is an internal North African discussion. Look at what just happened in Tunisia. I, yeah. So the hostility must be quelled. For you people must have a conversation amongst yourself what you want to be is what is going to determine the relationship in future. If by the time sub-Saharan Africa becomes more sovereign, more strong, and the children of that place are more in control of their destiny, mm. and the people of North Africa still have this negativity, there will definitely be conflict, huge conflict. You know, this would be probably the next frontier. What's that? What is going on in uh, Israel and Palestine would be the sub-Saharan Africans. Uh, uh, fueling internal unrest in mm -hmm. North Africa through these indigenous Africans that are there mm -hmm. who are already pushed to the back. You know, you look at the TV today, you might not even know that there are Egyptians that are black-skinned, dark-like me. You never know there are Algerians that are dark-like me. You never know because it's such a racist society. Yeah. You know, so this is something internal that I don't even want sub-Saharan government, I don't want the AU to be the ones to tell uh, Egyptians to have this conversation mm -hmm. and remove racism and anti-blackness from the continent of Africa. It's just like in South Africa. Yeah. It's the same attitude that the Europeans, they have towards the Africans there. You know, for anybody to say, you know, uh, uh, what is the future going to be like in South Africa between the black and the whites? <laughs> it means that person is naive to this, the person trying to be naive to the internal situation itself. Yeah. So that's just what it is. Africa is weak. Sub-Saharan Africa is weak, politically, economically, there is no repercussion mm. to whatever atrocity you commit against these children. So that's why African people are still shot in Europe and America on the street like dogs, because no African government is going to stand up and say, you know what, I'm expelling the American right. ambassador until they give me an explanation for why you've killed our children that are in your country. You know, because if they were killing Chinese people like that, or Indians, you know, or Germans, or uh, French people that live here like that, these governments will say something. Only the African government will never say nothing about African people anywhere in the world that are being killed. You understand? So when that time comes that Africa is strong enough to ask those questions and they're like, no, we won't have that. Mm -hmm. So this is what will determine every relationship mm -hmm. that Sub-Saharan Africa is going to have with anybody mm -hmm. is the way its children are treated in those borders. Mm. How do younger generations make work towards those connections so that they can protect the future because it feels like you know there's we there's this cycle of repeating history over and over and over again and then all of a sudden the little kids who wanted change or felt hope or whatever it it's as if they become the same adults that we're seeing today and there's like the the and the cycle continues and maybe things are changed here and there but what is how do we actually create the space to not only support the younger generation so that they have what they need and the resources they need to make those better connections, to aim for that sense of unity and peace and thriving versus um, what we're doing to them today. No, but I think a lot of young people on their own are disillusioned with the system of the world. Right. A lot of young people in the world today want a different world, as I said, but I don't think that they understand the work that they have to do to get that. I don't think yeah. that they understand, they truly understand the people that are creating these feelings that they have. Because on the one hand, they all hate this feeling. And on the other hand, they embrace the people that create this feeling. You know, everybody's put on some kind of pedestal. Yeah. Or some kind of, you know, so at the same time, you have to wonder if 
young people truly understand what is going on. And it is not their fault also. It is because we have uh, adult population that refuses to grow up, one, and they are completely uh, uh, also betraying um, the new, the next generation. Why? You know, you, you turn on the news, mm-hmm. for example. You're supposed to go to universities, professors. All these people are in the pockets of corporations. You know, you go to universities, professors are not teaching the truth. They are teaching ideologies. You know, they are teaching narratives. Sorry, not even ideologies. Narratives, because they are after their grants. All our universities all over the world, not even in Europe, all over the world, are sponsored by the rich. You know, the, the rich run the experiments. The grants are given from the pocket of the rich people who determine what experiments their money will go into and what knowledge will be advanced in society, mm. which now goes on to create the kind of graduates that come out of these schools. You know, because those professors that do get the most grants are able to push their ideas forward, get further in the um, academic institutions and have more influence over the thoughts of the young students coming up so that's why this cycle perpetuates itself, not because young people don't know what to do, mm. but because they go into higher institution thinking they want to change the world and meet people who switch what changing the world means mm. to them. So we are constantly being betrayed. So we must also understand that we are on our own in this quest, you understand, to change the world. We cannot believe in any institution. We must do the work of understanding the world if you say you truly love the world, because that is love. Love is understanding. So if we love the world, we want a better world, mm. why are we not spending time understanding the world? Mm-hmm. Why would we rather waste time on TikTok? You know, we spend more hours looking at our phone than looking at something that can help us change the world. We mm. can't change the world with our phone. And it's obvious that we can change the world without our phones, because I know for a fact that uh, Nkrumah did not have email, Sankara did not have email, Lumumba did not have a mobile phone. You know, they, they hardly even had flights out of their country, maybe one flight a month to New York, and they made it happen. They organized globally. Uh, Nkrumah knew Malcolm X and knew who Martin Luther King was, and Martin Luther King went to Ghana and met with Nkrumah. And these people coordinated themselves and worked hard, understood the world, wrote theories and books that we still use today, that is like they wrote them yesterday. And this is how much these men understood the world back then. Mm. And we today, as I say, pay lip service because mm. people just want clouds. Trust me, people just want clouds. You know, everybody is a social justice warrior, <laughs> you know, because it's cool. You know, I'm telling you, because it's cool, you know, you do it for likes, you know. Uh, uh, and the corporations like that, you know, they want, our, they want us to rebel, as I said, without a revolution, yeah. you know, they want you to be a rebel without a cause, mm-hmm. you know, because in that way, you can be made to suit any narrative, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so for us, I think young people need to understand the work, the immense work in front of us if we truly want a new world, mm. you know, if we truly want a new world, we have to understand the immense work in front of us. We can't do like the Democrats, you know. I always say to people, many young people are like, Democrats, the Democrats of America, mm. you know, <laughs> you know, who, they want to change the world, but they support the military industrial complex at the same time, you know, yeah, yeah. they tell you, oh, we're the good guys, but they support the banks at the same time, you know, hey, come on, you know, <laughs> yeah, so they're the good guys, but they support big oil, you know, there's no difference between them and the Republicans, except what they say, you know, so, and this is the way they mold young positive people. 
You know, so there are young people that don't want to be positive. So yeah, leave them, let them go and be whatever. But the young ones that want to be positive, they mold them into being rebels without a cause. Mm. Yeah. Rebels without a cause. <laughs> Sion, what is a question that you are currently asking yourself? What does this all mean? You mm. know, yeah. What does it all, what is the grand plan? Not that it's a grand plan, but what does this all mean? You know, because... I want to believe that. I don't want to believe that people are so greedy and so visionless that they think they're going to move to Mars after they destroy this planet. <laughs> you know, really, that people are being hailed for going to space. We've already gone to space. We've gone to the moon. You understand? And some people are taking billions of mo our money again and because resources on Earth are finite. It's not infinite. We've done these things already. Now you're giving people more resources mm. to do the same thing over and over now so that rich people can go to space. What is the benefit for humanity if you can buy a $170, $1,000 ticket and you, you fly out of Earth uh, and you look at the Earth uh, and then you fly back inside? You know, you're creating jobs. They're going to create jobs. You know, like, I, I don't get this, you know? Mm -hmm. you know. But there's no money for education anywhere in this world. There's no money for schools anywhere in this world. There's no money for hospitals. There's no money for social programs. There's no money for anything positive. You know, we watch why the environment, the only one environment we have is completely decimated for nothing, just so that people can do what? Buy another boat, you know? And people truly believe in this whole wealth myth, you know, like this whole creating this, oh, you can't even mention, you know, like, oh, we have to put a, a earnings cap on people. Like, okay, after you make a billion, it's okay. Oh, then what is the answer? You know, people are so programmed, you know, like they don't even understand these numbers. I say to people like, why do you need $10 billion? You know, people don't understand what a billion is. They don't understand it. You know, because people just say, one billion. <laughs> Nobody understands what this is, you know, like what a billion truly means. So what do you want that for? And for what benefit are we allowing single individuals to accumulate so much of what is for everybody? Because this finite, as I repeat, not infinite, there are finite resources, is for everybody. It is no matter what anybody tries to say because of the violence that they've been able to use right. to dominate this world. Everything here is for everybody. At some point, our resources is not just for the humans, not just for the humans, the plant life, animal life. Mm -hmm. This is for everybody to share in all everything that exists. Yeah. But a few people are taking over 70% of it. If animals are dying out, rivers are being polluted because those are resources too and they are wealth, they are extracting everything from every living species, not only humans. The domination of man is complete, but the domination of nature is going to lead to the extinction of us all. Right. You know, and everybody knows that life doesn't need man to go on, mm. right? So probably we just want these people to take what is ours out of nature so we can die off with them, you know, and they'll tell our story. I don't understand what is going on. What does this all mean? This is my... I, so. Listen, you ask the question, this is where I am. What does this mean? 
Do you ask that question with the intention of having an answer? Yes, but this is where I get. We are having this discussion. So yeah. What does it mean? So I don't know. What are we doing? <laughs> I, I, my philosophy is I ask questions and I, I know I'm not going to get answers. I ask questions to just expand the way that I think and to gain. I'm trying because we, we need to stop it. This is the problem. You know, right. what does this mean? Is not so abstract that we could think of. But what does this mean in terms of we are going to die out at some point? Right. You know, mm. who's going to stop this train, mm-hmm. you know, from going off the cliff? Uh, my political mentor gave a great analogy of what is going on in America, which is kind of uh, the same thing going on globally, mm. that the train is clearly heading off the cliff. But nobody's talking about stopping it. <laughs> what they're discussing, the Republic, the Repub- it says the Republicans say, only straight white men should drive the train off the cliff. <laughs> the Democrats are like, nah, gay men, <laughs> gay women, black men, <laughs> black women, everybody should be given the right to drive the cliff, train off the cliff. <laughs> you know, nobody's like, who's going to stop the train? We have to stop the train. Nobody's discussing that. This train mm. has to be stopped. Mm. That is just the truth. But we are busy fighting over who is going to drive it off the... Right. And this is the narrative. Everybody's keyed into this narrative. Mm. We all want to... We all want a driver. You know, we're not talking about, hey, stop the train. <laughs> you know, but the few people saying that, you know, they are so far in the back, nobody's even listening. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, we just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) So I have a couple of questions from um, this incredible artist. Her name is Maimuna Youssef, also known as Mumu Fresh. I don't know if you've heard her work, but I think you would love it. Um, And I would love to pass along some of those questions. So first one is, what do you believe are the positive and negative impacts of Afropop on a global stage and being consumed by a worldwide audience? The only, the only thing, there's nothing negative about anything, any art. Mm. You know, uh, art is expression. I mean, Hitler drew some certain things as well. You know, so if there's an artistic side to that monster, you know, I mean, his expression to a certain extent, I don't want to say that it's negative. But what the only thing I have as a critic mm-hmm. is that the African elites, you know, expending so much on this narrative, you know, because trust me, don't think that Nigerian music, this pop, because we dominate it, right? 
is there because we are so great. It's there because the Nigerian elites spend more on entertainment than they do on education. Mm-hmm. I'm not joking. There's a for weddings alone in Lagos is twenty million dollars a week on weddings in Lagos. Yeah, and the artists get a huge chunk of this in performance. You know, everybody has their favorite artist. So in a week, they are claiming maybe a million. You know, some of these big guys when they are home, you know, just performing at these weddings alone. So there's the money when they come here, they are employing Beyonce's PR. They're not going to employ some chicken PR from one little corner. Like, listen, move aside. Who is repping Beyonce? Come here. How much is your money? <laughs> so mm. we play the game at that level, you know. So right. that's good for me. African kids have the right to be kids and express themselves. We have the right to experience everything. I don't want that to be seen as something negative or positive. The only thing I don't like is the fact that they try to act like that is the only thing happening in Africa. You know, that is the only thing I don't like because that is just not true. You know, there's so many African, the African musical and artistic space is so wide and so, how would I put it, so colorful, you know. Uh, so it's not all of us fantasizing about, you know, owning as much Gucci and whatever. Because this pop music that they say is African, for me, kind of, it's kind of a, like a white man in African attire, you know, because when I see the videos, all the things you see are like LV flags, Gucci symbols and culture, as we know, is all about the symbols that it portrays. And when you watch these videos, it portrays Lamborghini symbols, Ferrari symbols, Balmain, and these are the symbols that dominate this culture. So is it truly African? Mm. You know, is it just helping Europeans sell more shit to African people? It, you know, so, you know? Mm. So let's, let's, it's not positive, as I said, it's not negative, there's nothing about it. It's, it is what it is, it's art, it's, it's expression. Ab- and yeah. African children have the right, young African people have the right to express themselves to this world however they like. You know, mm-hmm. it's the African adults that I have a problem with who refuse to grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to be on TikTok with the kids all day, doing the dance all day. You know, why would nobody's there to build the continent or develop the continent, you know? Mm. Uh, we are all on TikTok. Well, it's <laughs> funny because another one of Mumu's questions is asking, do you let your children use social media? And if so, do you notice any positive or negative impacts on them as a result? Uh, yes. No, we, my, key, my daughter is not allowed on social media yet. She doesn't have any social media account. She's too young. And the world is too dangerous. Yeah. I don't think, I'm not afraid of that because I think um, it will influence her. I'm just scared because I can't be there on her phone with her all the time. And you don't know the kind of people that you interact with or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I said when she grows up and she has some sense to be able to at least sense some danger, you know, she can go on social media. Because I want to believe that if you are a good parent, you're on your job, you still be the greatest influence in the life of your children. Yeah. You know, it's, except when you want to, uh, how do I put it, outsource. You know, these days, our parenting is outsourced. You mm-hmm. know, you want uh, your favorite artist to raise your kids. You want the teachers to raise your kids. You want the government to raise your kids. Everybody but you, you know, because you want to be on TikTok. You know, mm. <laughs> you want to go have brunch with your friends. You know, people don't understand that, you know, as soon as you have a kid, this is not, you know, Kids are different because now you is a responsibility towards the quality of humanity. Mm. This is your you're going to leave. You're bringing somebody new to us. It is your duty to make sure that you are presenting the best person to help us be a better family, a better human family. 
You know, people <laughs> understand and forget this responsibility because they are selfish. They are lost into the greed of this material world. Mm. You know, they are more interested in partying or whatever than to be parents. But they want to have kids so they can have the clout of being parents. Mm. You know, because this is what the world is today, you know. Mm. So I think that's kind of what is going on, basically. But I'm not afraid of social media and its influence in the life of those that are close to me. Because at the end of the day, you know, um, love is very powerful. And should, if you nurture it right, it creates the highest influence mm-hmm. in, your, in your community and society. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. So the way we wrap up these conversations is just a fill in the blank. And the statement is, Mm. if you really knew me, you would know. And you can pick, you can share one, two or three. Uh, Okay. If you really knew me, you'd know that I'm the laziest motherfucker alive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is it. That is my, that's my superpower. Lazy is for me, you know, because I don't want to sound self-righteous. Yeah. It's just... Humanity, let me tell you the truth. I believe that we truth. are put here to just spend all our time chilling, relaxing, looking up at the stars, mm. contemplating on the universe. Then you go out, pick some fruits to eat, you know, or hunt some stuff, go back to your house that your community has, you all built together, you know, protected. Go back, you contemplate the world again. Think about your mistakes yesterday. See how you can be a better person. Mm. Develop your human relationships. This is what I think we are here for. So this is what I'm doing most of the time. But then I have this guy, you know that. You're pointing to your manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who reminds me that I have contracts. You know, I have to write songs. I have to go and do shows. <laughs> you know, and this, 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 this fucks up my funk, you know? You know? So if you really knew me, you know, you know I'm lazy because I don't like to do any of these things. I, I, I like to do what I believe we're really put here for, mm, you know? Okay. Like last, like last week, one of the best times of my life this year, I was in bed. Yeah, tell me. On Monday, mm. from 6 p.m. Not, I slept at about 11, but I was just laying on my bed from 6 p.m. on Monday till 7 p.m. on Tuesday. I did not move. I did nothing. 25 hours. I read the book. You I, didn't use the bathroom? I went, I mean, bathroom, <laughs> came back, right back. You know, got some food, ate, right there. I did not put my food on the side, right back there. Same spot. You know, like, when I finally stood there, I could dance in my bed. Like, it was such a good day. I'm like, <laughs> wow. I wish I could just have another, like, 10 years like this. You know, just, oh, life is easy, you know. But nah, you know, they, they switch it all up. Got to pay all these bills. You know, you got to move. You know. uh, uh. Yeah. So if you knew me, <laughs> you know, because most people always say, oh, you're so hardworking. I mean, that's true, too. It I doesn't mean that, that innately. I don't think being hardworking is a compliment. I think this is the way the system, you know, gets you to yeah. forget you're supposed to be chilling. You know, oh, you're such a hard worker. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to be, I wanna be a hard chiller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Boom. I'm a hard chiller. That's the word. Beautiful. I should write a song called Hard Chiller. Well, yeah. I'll co-write it with you. Yeah. Okay. I, can, I got some poetry in me. Let's go. Let's, Let's do go. it. Send me some emails. You know, I I'll, give you, you. I'll give you credit. No money, but credit. No, it's fine. I don't need you, that. You get credit. Put you it get. all towards the movement. 
<laughs> you get credit. Hot chill. I'll give you credit. Like hot mm, chilling. Yeah. That's actually really good. Yeah, credit. man. Hot chilling. You know, he's not. Uh, he's not but there's chilling. hard chilling and there's heart chilling. No, no. Because heart. But hard chilling can contribute to your heart chilling. Yeah, your heart. Right. We're rhyming already. See, you this know. is amazing. Do you have any other if you really knew me's you want to share? Uh, if you really knew me, you know that I really wanted to be a footballer. Mm. you know also but that didn't work out no i was discouraged by my uncle who was like you know after 35 you have to quit so what will you do with your life after you yeah know? and i'm telling you that was so profound for me mm. you know and he's like all the best times of your life will be in your youth my uncle was really against me being because after my dad died dr becker raised me you know i lived in his house like about 21 i went off to uni came back you know if I moved out of his house again. So it was basically my dad, you know. So when it was time to, so like, man, I'm off to England. I'm going to start my, <laughs> I'm going to start going for trials and stuff. But like, man, sit down. Are you sure about this football thing? Okay. You know? And what about? And it's true. Look, today, Rolling Stones still jamming. Yeah. Pele is late now, you know. So I want to be able to jam. You, you want to just jam all the time. You know, still at least, you know, be jamming, you know. So that's, that's why I didn't play football. So if you knew me, you'd know I would have played football. Well, we're happy, you know, we're happy that you're making music still. We're, and, and I look forward to uh, hard chilling. Hard chilling. Listen, <laughs> don't be surprised. I'm not. Know? I'm telling you. Hard chilling. So that, true. So true. Hard chilling, man. We should commit to hard chilling. No, you know, seriously. We're done, you know. The you, next call to revolution. People should chill. You yeah. Know? Let, let, let's chill. Yeah. <laughs> we'll figure that out. Shayon, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Podcast Noor is an at your service production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Arisa. Editing by Nuran Morsi. The theme music is the song Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. Extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Shayon Kuti. You can stream Shayon Kuti and the Egypt 80 wherever you get your music. Oh, and fun fact, he is featured on a couple of songs on Janelle Monae's latest album, The Age of Pleasure, which I am obsessed with. As always, at your service.